Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Stephen Law. Very many theodicies can be flipped around with a little bit of imagination, and in some cases they work more quiet as well for the evil god hypothesis as they do the good god hypothesis, but then in other cases they seem to work slightly better. <laughs> if you like the show and want it to continue, please write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Stephen Law. Dr. Stephen Law is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of London and the editor of the journal Think, Philosophy for Everyone. He has written several books and journal articles and has done several public debates and dialogues about the existence of God. Stephen, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for inviting me on. Stephen, you seem to have a real passion for making philosophy accessible to people who don't have time to get a Ph.D. in philosophy. You've written a couple books to that end, and you also edit the philosophy journal Think, Philosophy for Everyone. What is your motivation for doing this? Well, I guess, to be honest, the main motivation is that I just enjoy it. It's kind of fun, especially writing philosophy children's books, which I've written three now. I always enjoy writing about you know, time travel and how do you know whether your parents are real rather than virtual, because I know the kids are going to enjoy it, and those are the kind of questions that got me excited when I was young. So it's, it's kind of fun, and, and I can put you know, bad jokes in and uh, use cartoons and so on. So, uh-huh. so there's one reason. You know, I just enjoy doing it. But I think the other reason is that I do think it's important that people take a step back every now and then from their day-to-day lives and, you know, think a little bit about some of the, the bigger questions, partly because it can help enrich your life, taking a slightly more reflective stance on occasion. But also, I think more importantly, it prevents people from becoming what I call moral sheep that kind of follow the flock and don't really think about what they're doing, morally speaking. It seems to me that a society of, of moral sheep is potentially a very dangerous thing. So if I can do something to prevent the society in which I live becoming a society of moral sheep, then, well, you know, then I'd like to do so. Well, I suppose moral sheep are the fodder for fascism, among other things. Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's a good question. You know, how do we prevent the kind of calamities, moral calamities that mar the 20th century? You know, the Holocaust is the, the cliche example that people wheel out. And I, and I think some people think that that the solution is to kind of straitjacket people's thinking, raise them so that they believe the right things, the things of which we, of which we approve, the right kind of moral attitudes. But actually, I think that is the source of the problem because those people will do what you tell them to do whilst you're in control, but when another authority comes along, then they can be led down uh, a very different path. It seems to me that we need to raise citizens so that they have the inner resources that they will need to resist being seduced by moral and political snake oil salesmen. And so raising them to think and question, I think that's very important. There's a risk attached to that, of course, because if you know, if you encourage people, young people to think and question, they may end up disagreeing with you. They may end up taking more positions that, you know, you you disapprove of that you perhaps you think are even dangerous. It's easy to exaggerate how much of a risk that is. I don't think that's nearly the risk that some people 
think it is. And in any case, even when people do disagree with us, at least if we've encouraged them to respect, you know, debate and reason, we can still reach them, still have a dialogue with them. We can still bring them round to our way of thinking if we're correct by using truth-sensitive methods such as reason. So so I, I think that on balance, it's it's a much healthier thing that we raise people to think and question. That, that, that's our best bet so far as immunizing ourselves, our society against more catastrophes is concerned. And in fact, I think there's, there's empirical evidence uh, that that's true. And this is the argument from your book, The War for Children's Minds. What is the empirical evidence that you think supports the view that we should teach people how to think and how to respect debate and reason rather than indoctrinating them with the values that happen to be our own? I don't say I have a knockdown case, but, I, but the, the kind of evidence I would point to is there were studies done of the backgrounds of uh, those who saved Jews uh, during the Holocaust. A couple called Pearl and Samuel Oliner wrote a book called The Altruistic Personality in which they presented their research into the backgrounds of rescuers and non-rescuers. And their conclusion was that, that what marked out the rescuers from the non-rescuers was not, as is commonly supposed, religious conviction or belief. That had some slight effect, but not very much. What really marked out the rescuers from the non-rescuers was the fact that the rescuers had been raised in a, in a non-authoritarian way. had been raised to think and question and make their own judgments rather than just to defer to some external authority, passively do what they were told. So I think right there we have some evidence, some empirical evidence, that if we want to immunize people against that kind of moral catastrophe, the right way to go about it is not to straitjacket people's thinking, particularly using religion. Uh, the right way to go about that is to, is to make sure that we raise what you might call enlightened citizens who, who are prepared to think critically about you know, even their own uh, moral and religious beliefs. Yeah, the results of that study were beautifully illustrated by the film director Michael Haneke in his movie The White Ribbon, where it's very strongly suggested that the seeds of fascism in Germany were the very authoritarian climate that the children were raised in, and that this led them to be moral sheep during the, the rise of fascism in Germany. It's a, it's a fascinating movie. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. I've, I've just noticed it coming up, actually, on, on my TV. I wasn't aware of what the film was about, so that, that's very interesting. When I presented the proposal for the book The War for Children's Minds to the publisher, it was sent out to various people for comments. And one commentator said, well, of course, Germany was very much an enlightened society prior to the Holocaust. It was, it was drenched in Kantian thinking. And Kant, of course, is a key Enlightenment figure who very much encouraged people to think for themselves, take on the responsibility for making, you know, important moral judgments rather than defer to some external authority. But actually, well, when you look at um, Hannah Arendt's investigation of Eichmann in The Banality of Evil, it turns out that although Eichmann said that he was a great follower of Kant, uh, he did actually describe himself that way. And when he was asked what Kant's philosophy was, he said it was to do your duty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to follow, oh, no. 
yeah, to follow, you know, the instructions that we were given. Uh-huh. Um, and so it turns out that it, that Eichmann's understanding of Kant's thinking was precisely the opposite of what Kant actually intended. I mean, Eichmann was, you know, a profoundly unenlightened individual, it turns out. So although it might have been true that, you know, refer- references to Kant abounded <laughs> amongst, you know, the populace, in 1920s, 1930s Germany, it seems that people didn't really understand what Kant meant. And in fact, they had a kind of fascistic understanding of of Kant's thinking, quite the opposite of what Kant actually intended. Well, switching gears a bit, one of your recent scholarly articles is The Evil God Challenge, which is a really enjoyable paper. What is your argument there? I try to locate beliefs on a scale of reasonableness. You know, beliefs can be more or less reasonable. Beliefs in Santa, beliefs in fairies, low down on the scale of reasonableness. And beliefs in the existence of Japan, very high on the scale of reasonableness. And then in the middle range, we have things like beliefs in the existence of, say, some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence out there in the cosmos. So beliefs can be located on this scale of reasonableness. And it seems to me that if you... I'm very confident that if you ask most Christians or Jews or Muslims where God exists lies on the scale of reasonableness, most of them will put that belief at least halfway up the scale. They'll say, look, you can't prove that there is a God or that there isn't a God, but still they consider it a, a not unreasonable thing to believe. It's, you know, halfway up the scale, maybe higher than that. But when you consider, when you ask them to consider a rather different God hypothesis, if you like, what I call the evil god hypothesis, which is the hypothesis that there is an all-powerful, supremely evil being that created the universe, just the one god and it's all evil. When you ask them how reasonable that is, they stick that particular belief very low down on the scale of reasonableness. They consider that no more sensible than, say, believing in fairies or in Santa. And what I do in the paper is I set up a challenge for those who place these two good hypotheses in these very different positions on the scale of reasonableness to explain why the good God hypothesis is so much more reasonable than the evil God hypothesis. So what I need to do now is kind of set the challenge out in a bit more detail. The first thing I do is I point out that many of the most popular arguments for the existence of God are actually not arguments for the existence of a good God, per se. They're merely the arguments for the existence of some sort of necessary being or some kind of cosmic intelligent designer. They're not arguments for a specifically good being. So right. those arguments those arguments are kind of neutral between these two God hypotheses. They don't support one more than the other. There are some exceptions to this rule, which we can have a look at in a minute, but many of the most popular arguments for the existence of God don't actually support one of these two hypotheses over the other. Worse still, there is surely very good evidence that there is no good God. There is the evidential problem of evil. The evidential problem of evil is look at just how much bad stuff there is in the universe. There are moral evils, you know, there, there's the Holocaust, as we've already mentioned. But there's also hundreds of millions of years of suffering, appalling suffering, literally unimaginable quantities of suffering through which sentient creatures have gone prior to the, you know, the appearance of human beings, even, on, on the face of this planet. The, the challenge is to explain why a good God would allow or create a universe containing 
quite so much suffering. Uh, he might have some reasons to introduce some, perhaps for the sake of certain greater goods, but surely we can't account for all of it by supposing that in some way, you know, it's all for the best. So there is the evidential problem of evil, uh, which faces belief in a good God. Now, when theists are presented with that argument, they respond in a variety of ways. One of the most popular ways is to construct theodicies of one sort or another. So, for example, there's a free will type theodicy, a simple version of which would go like this. God gave us free will, the, the ability to make uh, free choices and act on those choices. And the reason that he did that is that it allows for a certain important good. And moral goodness cannot exist unless there are moral agents. And moral agents require the existence of you know, free, free agents that can be held responsible for the decisions that they, that they make and the, the, the actions that they perform. So in order for moral goods to exist, God had to, as it were, cut our strings. We couldn't be mere puppet beings. But of course, the downside to that is that we sometimes choose to do bad things. And this supposedly is the explanation of why there is war, why there is a holocaust and so on. This is supposed to account for at least some of the evil mm-hmm. that we observe in the universe. That's an example of a theodicy, a simple free will theodicy. There are many other theodicies that have been constructed. And of course, you can also supplement these theodicies with an appeal to mystery. You can say, well, God is beyond our, our understanding, necessarily so. This really is the best of all possible worlds. These terrible things that we observe really are all for the best. It's just that being mere human beings, we cannot possibly understand how. So you know, there, there are some examples of how theists respond to the problem of evil and in the paper the evil god challenge what i do one of the key things i do is i point out that exactly the same kinds of explanation can be used to defend belief in an evil god Hmm. so for example if i believe in in an evil god i have the problem that i have to explain why there's so much good stuff in the universe. Why is there love and laughter and rainbows? Why does evil God allow people to help each other and reduce suffering, given given that suffering is something that actually he wants to promote? In order to deal with that uh, evidential problem of good, you can use a a free will theodicy. You can say, well, look, evil gods could have made us mere puppet beings, but puppet beings lack moral responsibility. And so a world inhabited by puppet beings that are always made to do the bad thing, that world would not contain any moral evil. No one would be morally responsible for anything that they did, and so the world would fail to contain moral evil, which is, of course, one of the deepest, most important forms of evil that there is. So God cut our strings. That allows for the the possibility of moral evil. The downside to that is that we sometimes choose to do good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, darn. Yeah, but that's the price evil God has to pay for the very great evil of there being moral evil in the universe. So you can see what I've done is I've merely taken a standard Christian theodicy and I've turned it around and it appears to work just as well. Just as well, or just as badly, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. You can do this for many theodicies. I don't say all, but very many theodicies can be flipped around with a little bit of imagination. And in some cases, they work not quite as well for the evil god hypothesis as they do the good god hypothesis. But then in other cases, they seem to work slightly better, <laughs> actually. 
And if you're ultimately unconvinced by these theodicies, again, we can appeal to, uh, we can play the mystery card. We can say, well, look, you know, this is God, remember, that we're talking about, an evil God whose uh, intelligence lies, you know, is infinite, boundless. And so, of course, we're not going to be able to understand that this, you know, why these goods exist in the world. You know, we just have to accept that they do. We just have to show a little faith, if you like. Uh, this really is the worst of all possible worlds, and we should show a little humility and, and recognize that we just can't, we just can't understand why these good things exist. So you can see now the, the, the overall structure. The, the, the challenge now to the person that believes in the good God, if they think that belief in the good God is significantly more reasonable than belief in an evil God, the challenge they face now is to explain, well, why is that so? Why is belief in a good God so much more reasonable, you know, not unreasonable, say, if belief in an evil God is downright ridiculous, which, of course, pretty much everyone supposes. Given that there are these reverse theodicies which mirror the standard theodicies, given that the, many of the standard arguments for the existence of God are completely neutral on what God's moral character is like, shouldn't we conclude that both God hypotheses are pretty low down on the scale of reasonableness? I mean, mm -hmm. maybe one's a bit higher than the other one. We could argue about that. But surely one cannot be very significantly more reasonable than the other, given the available evidence. So that, that's the challenge that I set up. And I don't say that it cannot be met, but it seems to me that it is a very serious and difficult challenge to meet. And pers personally, I cannot see how it can be met, which is why I'm an atheist. <laughs> Well, one objection to the parity that you try to establish between the good God hypothesis and the evil God hypothesis is the ontological argument, which tries to establish the existence of specifically a perfectly good being. What's your yeah. response to that? That might be a way of dealing with the challenge. Try and come up with an ontological argument for the existence of not just a God, but a good God. Now, well, first of all, philosophers don't generally consider ontological arguments very persuasive. I mean, even amongst theists, they're not considered particularly... One or two theistic philosophers think that there's something there worth considering, but even amongst theists, I think the majority of them probably don't consider them terribly good arguments. Also, it's worth noting that you can provide mirror images of ontological arguments in many cases. So Anselm's ontological argument goes, uh, I can conceive of God, a being greater than which cannot be conceived, but it's greater to exist in reality than in the imagination. Therefore, the being of which I'm conceiving must exist in reality. So that, that's an Anselm-type ontological argument. And now everyone who, who's listening knows why most people don't accept it. <laughs> You can you can now run this argument. Um, I can conceive of an evil god, a being uh, more evil than which cannot be conceived. It's more evil for such a being to exist in reality and in the imagination. Therefore, the evil being of which I am conceiving must exist in reality. So on the face of it, we have uh, an ontological argument for the existence of an evil god. Now, of course, the theist will say, oh, no, that's a terrible argument, but my one's a good one. But again, you know, now the onus is on them to explain why one argument is good than the other one. Is not. Maybe they can do that, but it's certainly interesting that you can construct these mirror ontological arguments. Stephen, you, I think you like flipping things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Gettier, who just wants to spend all day uh, coming up with counterexamples. You want to spend all day flipping things. <laughs>
It's one of my fortes is coming up with uh, thought experiments <laughs> that are kind of, yeah, that's, I'm a pancake kind of philosopher. I like to flip things, yeah. <laughs> well, so that's your response to the objection coming from the ontological argument. Now, another objection from theists is that they'll say there really isn't a parity between the good God hypothesis and the evil God hypothesis because there is no such thing as evil. Evil is just the lack of good or the privation of good. Does this undermine your evil God challenge? If you're a theist and you want to explain why the good God hypothesis is significantly more reasonable than the evil God one, I think focusing on moral concepts is probably your best bet. And so, you know, this is an example of that. But I don't, I'm not convinced that saying that evil is a privation of good actually gets us very far. You won't be surprised to hear <laughs> I mean, first of all, who thinks that evil is a, is a privation of good? Outside of you know, theology, hardly anyone. And even within sort of theistic circles, I know of several philosophers of religion that, that don't think that that's true at all. So it certainly is a, it's a very questionable doctrine. It's certainly true that some evils are best explained as absences or privations of good. A classic example, I suppose, would be um, blindness. You know, if you want to explain why what blindness is, you have to refer to sight, which is a good, and blindness is an absence of that good. So it's certainly true that in you know, in some cases, explaining what an evil is, what you need to do is start with the good and then point out that this is an evil because it consists in an absence of that good. I, I grant you that that's true in some cases, but actually the reverse seems to be true in other cases. If you look up peace, in the dictionary, peace being a good, chances are it'll say it's something like, you know, an absence of war and so on. Uh, it consists in the absence of certain evils. That's, that's how it is defined. So, you know, in some cases it looks like uh, evil is a privation of good. In other cases it looks more like uh, good is a privation of evil. Why not say that? <laughs> You've flipped it again, Stephen. I've just flipped it again, haven't I? Yeah. You have not disappointed me. <laughs> the thing is, I, I don't believe either of those two things. It seems to me that... To almost anyone that thinks about it for more than five minutes, surely you know, evils do involve more than just an absence or privation of good. I mean, agonizing pain, it's pretty hard to make sense of you know, that kind of agony as the mere absence or privation of something. It seems to be something positive in its own right. And so it's, it's just a lot to swallow that you know, evil is merely a privation of good. It's, it's a highly contentious, even many philosophers of religion don't accept it. And the fact is that even if it were true, it's not entirely clear in any case why it would help with the evil God challenge. I mean, why do you think it might? Well, I think the idea is that you can't talk about an evil God in positive terms because evil is not an actual existent, you know, positive property of something. It's mm -hmm. just a lack. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not the theist making the case, but that's how I interpret them. Well, so why couldn't there be a being that entirely lacks goods, that is all-powerful? Yeah. Well, and the, the common theistic conception of God is often defined in terms of what he lacks as well. Uh, he lacks physicality. Mm. He lacks limits, all, that kind yeah. of thing. So I'll grant you that as well. Yeah. Well, I've come across this response many several times, you know, well, evil is a privation of good, of, of, of good you know, problem solved. <laughs> but first of all, it's, it's, it's almost certainly not true that evil is merely a privation of good. And secondly, even if it were true, 
actually, how is that supposed to help in any case? It's, it's by no means clear. Possibly we can construct some kind of ingenious argument that would show, for example, that an evil god is an impossibility. Perhaps that could be done. But as I point out in the challenge, even if that were true, even if you know evil is a, is a privation of good, which it almost certainly is, and, and even if from that it followed that an evil god is an impossibility, which it, it, it may not do, in any case, we can still run the evil god challenge because we can say, well, okay, maybe there is this asymmetry between the good god and the evil god, that uh, an evil god is actually an impossibility, right? Whereas a good god is not. Actually, incidentally, there are all sorts of reasons why you might think a good god is an impossibility as well. But we'll set those to one side. Let's suppose that it's true that a good god is an, is, is, you know, involves some kind of it involves no conceptual incoherence, whereas there is some kind of conceptual incoherence in the very notion of an evil god. Suppose that were true. So what? We can still run an evil god challenge because we can say, well, setting aside for one moment the fact that there is this conceptual incoherence in the notion of an evil god, had there not been such an incoherence, how reasonable a hypothesis would you consider it to be? And if the answer is very unreasonable indeed, then the question is, well, why do you consider the good God hypothesis to be significantly more reasonable? Hmm. So even, even if you could establish that an evil God is an impossibility, you can still run the evil God challenge, interestingly. So it's much harder to knock down on, you know, you might initially think. Well, while it is a scholarly article, it's definitely one that people without philosophical training might be able to enjoy. And so I really appreciate the way that you wrote that paper. It's really a pleasure. Now, switching gears again, you recently participated in something called the God Delusion Weekend at Oxford University. What was that? That was a uh, short two-day course based on Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And it was run by Oxford University Department of uh, Continuing Education. And it consisted of four talks, two from me and two from Marianne Talbot, uh, and then a one-hour discussion. And I, being an atheist, was rather more Dawkinsian. <laughs> and Marianne, highly critical of The God Delusion. And it was great fun. We had a, we had a, we had a good time on that, that course. And it's available, I should add, now as a series of podcasts on iTunes. If you go to iTunes, you can find it in either video form or as an MP3. If you go to Oxford uh, University and then search in there for God Delusion, you will find the podcast. Yes, and I'll link to them in my post for this podcast as well. Yeah. Now, is Marianne Talbot a theist or she's just highly critical of the God Delusion? She's a kind of theist. I'm still not entirely sure I know what kind of theism, <laughs> which is a kind of it's a fairly non-standard kind of theism. But mostly, she was just very critical of the book rather than making a case for her own brand of theism. Mm -hmm. And and I, by contrast, I looked at some strengths and weaknesses of the book because I think the book does have weaknesses and does have strengths. And then I also gave my own particular argument against the existence of God, which we just looked at, the evil God challenge. And what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the God delusion? I like the way in which Dawkins suggests that the particular God hypothesis he considers is actually amenable, potentially, to you know, a empirical or even a scientific refutation. I think he's right about that. It seems to me that people often when it comes to supernatural claims, insist that because they concern strange 
realm which exists behind the sort of veil that we can't gain direct access to it. We can't peek behind the veil and have a look what's back there. But we only have access to sort of the natural side of the veil. Uh, and science only has access to the natural side of the veil that therefore claims made about what's behind the veil are immune to any kind of empirical or scientific refutation. It's a common strategy that people use to immunize their supernatural beliefs against that kind of empirical threat. And I pointed out in my talk, actually, that it's, you know, it's not just used to defend belief in God, it's used to defend belief in, say, the efficacy of crystals. <laughs> I gave some examples of how people use this veil doctrine to try and defend their belief that, that crystals have some sort of miraculous effect on people mm. against scientific evidence to the contrary. Uh, it's exactly the same strategy that they use, although it's got nothing to do with God. It seems to me that uh, Dawkins is right to say that, you know, putting God back there behind the veil does not actually immunize him against empirical and scientific refutation. There are many aspects of reality which are not directly observable. I mean, the distant past, for example. We can't, you know, go back and have a look at it, not without a time machine, or, you know, teeny tiny unobservables. We can't see them. But it doesn't follow from that that we can't have pretty good grounds either for supposing that certain things are there or that other things are not there, given that, you know, claims about what's there very often have empirically observable consequences. It's pretty reasonable to believe in the existence of electrons. That provides a very satisfying explanation for certain things that we, we can observe. It's very reasonable to believe that you know, there are no fairies <laughs> because you know if they were there, we would expect to see certain kinds of things and we can check to see whether those things really are there. And if they're not there, then we can conclude quite reasonably that there ain't no fairies there. Yeah, it's very confusing for me to hear theists go at length to explain why there is scientific evidence in support of God and then to turn around and say that science could not possibly refute the God hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, that's just downright inconsistent, of course. But sometimes they don't do that. Sometimes they're more consistent. Sometimes they'll say, well, look, science, empirical data has nothing to say one way or the other, which is okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's true, but at least it's consistent. <laughs> yeah. Or they could say, well, you know, there could be evidence for and there could be evidence against. And some theists take that line. I mean, Keith Ward, for example, uh, just the other day, I heard him say precisely that. But what you often find is that people operate with a slightly inconsistent approach. They say, well, there's some evidence here that there's a God. It's suggestive. The word suggestive is a telltale word. Polkinghorn, people like that use it a lot. They say, well, I've got no proof that there's a God. But mm, look at this fine-tuning here. <laughs> this is suggestive, isn't it, that there is some kind of some kind of god back there. But then, when I'm not I'm not accusing Polkinghorne specifically of this because uh, he doesn't do it, but other other people do do it. They, when you point out the evidential problem of evil, uh, you say, "Well, look at all of this really bad stuff. Surely this uh, establishes pretty conclusively that there ain't no good god behind the veil." In just the same way as it. The, the, the sheer quantity of good stuff establishes that there's no evil God behind the veil. They say, oh, well, you know, you know God's behind the veil. You know, the, the, the empirical evidence can't, can't settle the matter one way or the other. We just have to have faith. So that's a strength of Dawkins' book, is that he makes that yeah. point. Uh, what's a weakness from the God delusion? There are a few things that are, that are, that are weak. Uh, his discussion of morality, I think, is weak. But the thing I focused on in my talk, which I thought was possibly weak, his central argument against the God hypothesis, 
he argues that the existence of God must be improbable. And his argument is, well, it's not entirely clear what the argument is, but, you know, I, I can have a stab at <laughs> reconstructing Yeah, please do. Like. I've, had, I've made several <laughs> attempts to interpret Dawkins' argument so that it's both valid and somewhat persuasive, and it's been very difficult to extract such an argument. I can't quite put it in textbook form, but um, I, I think it goes something like this. I mean, he starts with the observation that many people try to argue for the existence of God by pointing to things like the supposedly fine-tuned character of our universe or the irreducibly complex biological mechanisms such as the, uh, the bacterial flagellum. And they say, you know, what are the chances? <laughs> what are the chances that something as complex as that should just exist as a matter of brute fact? That's extraordinarily improbable. The probability of something like that existing is just very, very low. From that observation, they move then to the conclusion that, well, it's more reasonable then to suppose that there is a god, uh, intelligent being, that deliberately fine-tuned the universe, that deliberately set up the levers of the universe just so, so as to produce life. And this, many people think, is, if not a proof of the existence of God, at least very strongly uh, suggestive. This lends their belief, you know, a degree of, of plausibility. And Dawkins challenges that. He says, well, if your God is going to account for what would otherwise be improbable, namely this kind of complexity, structural complexity, he would have to himself be at least as complex, at least as structurally complex. And if you're saying that the brute existence, as it were, of such a structurally complex thing is highly improbable, then it follows that your God is highly improbable. It kind of takes the theist argument and runs it against him, or that kind of theist. Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of argument that he's running. Something like that. Does that sound plausible? <laughs> yeah, that that would be one way to interpret him. And then yeah. what do you think, what's your concern about that argument? Well, there's a gap in it as it stands. I mean, why does God have to be uh, complex? And Dawkins doesn't spell that out in much detail, but reading between the lines, we might put something like this together. We might say, well, look, God is a designer who has a mind now, that involves representation. God's thoughts must represent the universe. Right. In the same way that, you know, if you're going to design a clock and then you build it, you'll design your blueprint. Or if you don't have a blueprint, you know, what's in your head must have at least as much structural complexity as the clock that you're, you then go on to create. And if it doesn't, then you never design the, the clock. Uh, it's a condition of it being designed that, you know, there'd be a representation either on the, mm -hmm. on the blueprint or in your head that represents all of that structure. And so it would have to be at least as complex, at least as structured. Now, I think that that principle is pretty plausible, actually. I think representations must be at least as complex as that which they represent. And so if God's mind has to represent his creation in all of its complexity, God's mind would have to be at least as complex. And so God would have to be at least as complex. So I, I think that something like that is probably what Dawkins has in mind. Well, I think here we run into a basic problem with the theistic hypothesis, and that is that God is defined to be basically the opposite of everything we know. So we can say all day that, hey, look, in every instance of design that we know of, 
the design itself has to be represented in the mind of the designer. We can say that all day, but that the theist can always say, well, God's mind is different. And just like we yeah. say, well, look, every person we know of is physical. Every thought process we know of takes place within time. And the theist can say, well, God is different. Well, God is different. Well, God yeah. is different. And I just, yeah. I don't even know how to process the probability of the theistic hypothesis because it's supposed to be something completely contrary to everything we understand. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point, actually. I mean, they will, many of them will say that in, in response, uh, God is different. I mean, Dawkins actually may be potentially vulnerable to that because he says that his argument is a scientific argument. And actually, I'm not sure it is a scientific argument, and it, it would be better if it weren't. It would be better if it were considered to be a conceptual argument, right. actually. So the point I made about representation was purely conceptual. It, it wasn't based on, you know, empirical observation of representers that generally in, the, <laughs> in representations as a matter of empirical fact, there's always at least as much structure as there is in that which it represents. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be an empirical science-based argument for the conclusion that God's mind must have that kind of complexity too. And, and then and if that were your argument, you would be vulnerable to an obvious criticism, which is, well, why, why suppose God's mind has to be like that. He's he's other. He's not part of the you know, the empirical universe. He's not bound by the laws that govern the things that go on within it. So I think that it actually if Dawkins' argument were a scientific empirical evidence based argument, it would be vulnerable to that criticism. But the way I phrased it was different. I mean I I was really running a conceptual argument. I was saying it doesn't make sense. We can know a priori just by thinking about it that a representation must have at least as much structural complexity as that which it represents. I mean, that just seems to be a kind of conceptual truth about representation, which we can figure out just by having a think about it. It's not science at all. And if that's true, then I think then the theist is in trouble, potentially, because what we seem to have shown then is that their God, uh, as a matter of conceptual truth, must be at least as complex as that which they're, they're invoking him to explain. Well, Stephen, I'm quite glad that you enjoy making philosophy accessible for people and writing philosophy books for children, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It's been, been fun. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Yako Gareke about fundamentalism on stilts. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.